Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Universal social programs have never been hotter on the political agenda nationwide. In the recent Democratic debates, we saw nearly every candidate stumping hard for these universal programs, if not in a qualified, if not bastardized way. They seem to be essentially the ticket for entry into mainstream Democratic Party politics. These universal programs have a rich legacy in the New Deal, and they have become points of contention in terms of whether universal programs versus means-tested programs, what are the racial legacies of universal programs in the New Deal, and so on and so forth. And I've brought on Richard Walker to talk about those debates today. He is the director of the Living New Deal Project and professor emeritus of geography at the University of California, Berkeley. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So you are the director of the Living New Deal Project, and the foundational claim of that Living New Deal is actually in the name. That is that the New Deal is not an event in the past, but rather it's alive. What do you mean by that? What does it mean to say that the, that the New Deal is alive? Well, it means two or three things. One is that it, the ideal of the New Deal still lives in progressive policies, progressive hopes for American government. Secondly, it means that a lot of the programs are still around. Social Security is still around. Labor law is still around. A lot of the welfare and housing programs are around, although they're, they've been greatly diminished by uh, the neoliberal attack on the New Deal to undo its legacy over the last quarter to half century. And then finally, uh, one thing in specific we do at the Living New Deal is we document all the public works that the New Deal built and its astonishing legacy of literally hundreds of thousands of city halls and schools and sewer lines and waterworks and dams and highways and so on, which was never um, documented because the New Deal shaded directly into World War II, so nobody had time to wrap it up and document it all. It was done so fast and fast and furiously and everywhere that Americans had little idea how amazing that legacy was. So the New Deal is mostly remembered for Social Security, uh, maybe labor law, and having done something back in the 1930s to deal with the Great Depression, but people don't really understand it. So <clears throat> I guess partly what we're saying is the New Deal really is alive. It, we still use a lot of the infrastructure. And it's also uh, kind of a flame, a hope of reviving the New Deal because it is such a unique moment in American history and something we so desperately need something like that today. Of course, the New Deal has recently been resuscitated, revivified in the Green New Deal. People have been using that uh, historical allegory, if you will, more or less directly, sometimes incredibly directly in terms of reestablishing some of these civilian work corps and so on and so forth, rebuilding our infrastructure. We're going to talk much more about that in the B-side. So people should stay tuned for the B-side. That's going to be available for our patrons after our discussion today. So we're just going to kind of bracket that for now. Um, 
Of course, this new deal is hot on the agenda because of the way that Bernie Sanders has framed his democratic socialist project on those terms. In terms of uh, his vision for democratic socialism is not, of course, this kind of command uh, authoritarian economy style that you saw in the Soviet Union or in China or elsewhere. But rather, he has an, a distinctly American form of democratic socialism wherein he is attempting to complete what he sees as the hopes, the dreams, the project the promise, the aspirations of the early New Dealers. Let's do a, a brief historiography of the present. Why is the New Deal now on the agenda? Why are so many mainstream pundits uh, jumping to the table to criticize Bernie's uh, e equation of democratic socialism with the New Deal? Is, is that a false equivalency or is there some truth to that? Oh, no, I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think it's back on the agenda because if you're a progressive, if you're looking for ways out of our the, the wreckage of America that has been produced by this last almost half century of neoliberalism and free markets and deregulation and dismantling of social assistance and so on, uh, if you're looking to turn that around, wh where would you go for a model? And the New Deal is precisely that model because it built most of those programs and was the target for the neoliberal dismantlers. I mean, going back to the 30s, uh, the right, big percentage of the capitalist class, hated the New Deal, hated Roosevelt for what he did, and started plotting on how to undo it. And it was so successful, and it underwrote post-war prosperity for so long that they couldn't do it. So that even, you know, Eisenhower, Republican like Eisenhower, was still maintaining a lot of New Deal type infrastructure programs like the interstate highways. So they they weren't able to really turn it around until the late 70s. And then it took them 25 years to dismantle most of it. Although some things like Social Security they could never quite get, thank heaven. So, you know, I think progressive democratic socialists look at this and say, yes, this is what we need, something like this. And this is what the right hates. So it must be right on the logic of my friend of my enemy is my friend. And they're right. So if you have any sense of American history in the 20th century, you realize that this is the greatest model we have. It was the greatest progressive moment in American history with a possible exception of what was attempted in Reconstruction, but actually was dismantled very rapidly, whereas the New Deal carried on for another half, for, kind of dominated for a half century of American public policy. So I'd like to get into a debate that you have uh, been involved in in just a moment about the legacy of the New Deal and whether or not it was responsible for segregation. Yeah, I think I think we should pre preface that to kind of uh, make a bridge between what I just said and what we're about to get into. That you know the right does see this incredible move to the left by the Democratic Party that has been really pushed by Bernie Sanders and now picked up by most of the candidates in one shape, 
one form or another. And yeah, I think it just scares the the Jesus out of them. <laughs> yes, um, yes. They say, "Oh my God, you know, this could we could actually get something like that again." Um, these people are making sense. Uh, this isn't neoliberal chit chat. This isn't Clintonian and Biden like middle of the roadism, where uh, you know it's just good centrist neoliberalism. Not even liberalism, but neoliberalism. And for them, for the right, for the capitalist class, for the ruling the elite of America, this is dangerous stuff because it could mean massive taxation of the rich, massive reconstruction of government, which they've been dismantling for 50 years, relegitimation of the idea of the social good and social spending, social investment for everyone. Uh, empowerment of the working class, of the working people of America, that's that's a very scary prospect. And whether you call it democratic socialism, or as the Europeans call it, social democracy, or you can call it New Deal liberalism, because in America for years, that's what we called it, because the word socialist always has had this, uh, this kind of dangerous tint tint to it because people think it means Leninist or, or uh, Stalinist communism, which it does not. It has many, many meanings. But okay, call it, new, call it New Deal liberalism. But it is not the liberalism that we've seen for the last 50 years. It's a different liberalism. It was a liberalism that tried to live up to the highest uh, values of, of American history, American uh, Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Yeah, you really stole my my thought there. I, I appreciate where it seems like we have a nice mind meld going already at this point in the interview because that's that's kind of where I wanted to go. Before we talk about this debate that you're having uh, about the legacy of race and segregation and the New Deal and the viability of universal programs in today's conjuncture, you know, we have to talk about that political context yeah. because you know, again, kind of risking this thing you know that I, I call kind of hastily or, or ad hoc way, historiography of the present, which is kind of a contradiction in terms. It's something that historians don't like to do. Every time a historian chimes in in a, in a newspaper or what have you, in an op-ed, they always, you know, what's the, what's the preface you hear, Richard? It's, uh, well, you know, historians aren't supposed to do this, but I'm going to comment on the present or I'm going to speculate about the future, right? It's That's sort of the, the no-no, but you're a geographer and I'm not an academic anymore, so let's do it. I mean, it's important. We We now know understand through a lot of academic self-criticism over the last generation or two that history like all disciplines is influenced by the present and so we are constantly reinterpreting history based on the present and that you know that's certainly true i would admit to that because i would like to see something like the new deal done again Therefore, I think that influences my attempt to resuscitate the New Deal and defend the New Deal and so on. But the converse is true as well, that there are historians who are going to reach, say, oh, well, I'm just neutral. The New Deal did this or that. It failed on this, failed on that. It's really not a good model. But they're coming from certain places today, too, whether it's a there's been a lot of right-wing critiques of New Deal by people like Amity Schles, or there have been liberal critiques. And I think we're going to get into one of those. It just 
Well, you know, it's a kind of false neutrality that, you know, I'm innocent of any of any attempt to rewrite history. I'm just telling the truth. And we all have to be very careful about who any claims to be the absolute truth teller. Yeah, they just sit back and call balls and strikes and uh, spout the facts, right? It's the, these these uh, these truth claims are in no way, shape, or form political. They're pre-political or post-political. I'm not quite sure. These these are claims I think that my audience uh, is very rightly skeptical of, and so they'll be very receptive to our, our conversation today. Yeah, so, everyone knows that uh, part of the reason you still have human umpires calling balls and strikes is that they and every one of them interprets their interprets the day differently. And that's part of what makes baseball interesting. Part of what makes history interesting too, is that you can go back and, and look at the past afresh and take new lessons from it, um, which is why we have to keep history alive. Well said. I think, you know, I see this being proliferated, these narratives, these recent interpretations, these revisionist narratives emerging in inside the socialist movement today. And I see it less and less nowadays. I think Bernie Sanders and the popularity of universal programs like Medicare for All have really uh, given lie to this narrative, but it was something that proliferated even very heavily on the, on the socialist left. This kind of budding, uh, young, uh, green, very green socialist left in terms of being uh, not quite mature yet, uh, still ripening as a banana does, right? Uh, although they're, they're maturing and fast forward. I'm, I'm very excited about the pace of that development. But even up to a year ago, we had a proliferation of articles coming out in socialist outlets saying, ah, ah we got to be careful about these universal social programs. Look at the legacy of the New Deal. It was racist. And, you know, you see these, this is how these academic narratives uh, are disseminated into these activist circles and they become this new knee-jerk kind of status quo assumption, this basis of assumptions on which people develop their political analysis and their political prescriptions. And so it's, it's really heartening to see this get reversed and turned around in a, in a, in a real confrontational way, uh, but yet it's still, it's still here. So let's take this uh, head on. Uh, you recently uh, penned a piece for Jacobin Magazine, a relatively short review piece, but very necessary, making some important points. I told you all fair, a group of of confidants and comrades of mine, if you will, in, inside and outside of academia have been talking behind closed doors and kind of trying to get one another to write this piece saying like, man, we really got it. We got to write something about this. You guys, this narrative is, is, is bullshit and we got to stand up to it. Uh, so I'm glad that you wrote uh, on this specific book. Uh, that, that piece was titled the new deal didn't create segregation. And you took on a recent book that was kind of uh, leading that this new genre coming out of this legal and uh, you know policy oriented history uh, subgenre here. Uh, it's by Richard Rothstein. It's called The Color of Law. Tell us about your uh, your confrontation with that particular text. Yeah, Rothstein uh, is a legal historian. He's a fairly narrow legal historian, and he tries to argue that the government, you know, we can hold the government responsible for not having desegregated the country, for having supported, or as he says, deepened segregation. Because if you go back to the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment after the Civil War, clearly racial segregation was had become illegal. And... Uh, 
Therefore, when, say, the New Deal came along, uh, and he really focuses on the New Deal, it should have desegregated America and not, not helped in any way to confirm segregation. Okay, well, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, yes, I would love to have a New Deal have been the civil rights movement, but it was not the civil rights movement. It was something else. And the civil rights movement had not happened yet. In fact, what had happened was Jim Crow, and that after the dismantling of Reconstruction, uh, Jim Crow was reaffirmed and reestablished in the South, and also around most of the North. Now, in the North, the hierarchies weren't as clear, and therefore, there cities, white people and the elite tried to carve out spaces in cities where they would not have to deal with black people, with Chinese people, with industry and obnoxious smoke and noise and traffic. So they carved out more and more elite suburbs and neighborhoods that they protected through a whole series of legal means, starting with racial deed covenants back in the 19th century and then through zoning in the early 20th century. And then finally, it got written into some of the New Deal laws. So Rothstein's argument is that the New Deal created segregation, and it's just not true. The segregation was going on. It was uh, widespread. It was very popular. It was also absolutely reinforced by the main capitalist involved, which is the property developers, the real estate industry, we'll call it. And they had enormous clout through the National Association of Real Estate Boards, in Fed in Washington D.C. and on federal law and so on, as well as on state and tremendous impact on on locals. So, so all levels of the Fed, of the American government and our federal system were being mobilized from below and by and with the help of the property capitalists to enforce racial segregation. So to isolate the New Deal and say, oh, that created it, is just to completely misrepresent the history of segregation, the history of white supremacy and its relationship to government. In fact, the whole, it's a misrepresentation of how government works in America. So he has it wrong on any number of, of levels. And of course, the problem then is it becomes a kind of perverse defense of the the modern neoconservative neoliberal position that government is the problem. You know, it's Ronald Reagan. Government is the problem, not the market. But in fact, government is can be the solution, but government is deeply entwined with civil society. And we have to understand that relationship, how it's how it acts at certain times, certain places, and how it evolves. And you can't just rip that history apart, impose some pure standard taken from the post-civil rights period and say, oh, naughty, 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 uh, New Deal, you weren't the civil rights movement, you segregated America. And it's just, it's a totally bogus argument. So in a sense, people like Richard Rothstein and others in that genre, and the genre is rich, and I think there are, there are better and worse accounts. Because I think, you know, just to be clear, at least this is my view, there is a need for 
some kind of legal histor- historical approach to segregation, the civil rights movement, these processes that you know affected the New Deal in various ways. But the way that many of them play out, uh, even you know Ira Katznelson's uh, "When Affirmative Action Was White" and other works like that. I think Katznelson is a really fantastic scholar, but that, I, my estimate, that wasn't his greatest work. I've had people on the the program in the past who have taken issue with that book and and the way that it has uh, used a certain kind of what they would call a racial reductionist model. I mean, we're we're, we're accustomed to the left leftists being called class reductionists. But uh, liberals often fall, particularly liberal academics in today's uh, scene, often fall into a, a racial reductionist uh, motif almost, which which projects our modern sensibilities back into the present and then – sorry, back into the past and then makes them causative mechanisms yeah, in this really yeah. uh, kind of just-so narrative style, uh, which is really problematic. And, and in a sense, in this case, it's even more – destructive in, in that uh, people like Rothstein become useful idiots. And Rothstein was interviewed and praised in, in outlets like Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian outlet, an outlet which has no love <laughs> for the social welfare state or left and progressive politics. So I think you're, you're really, uh, you're, you're hitting on something really important here. Yeah. Now, ironically, I say, I defend Ira Katz Nelson. He actually was one of the first major academics to join our board of advisors of the Living New Deal. He's a big defender of the New Deal. And he understands. And he also very clearly shows in his book, Fear Itself, the dire influence of the Dixiecrats on the New Deal, that in order to get a lot of the key legislation passed, uh, Roosevelt had to cut deals with the Southern Democrats. And uh, that doesn't mean Roosevelt liked it or that he was a racist. It means that he had to cut deals to get his legislation. And you can always argue, go back and argue about, did he have to do that one or that one? But the fact is he did. And uh, those guys had enormous clout, as did Western growers and others who, you know, left their stamp on the New Deal, too. So the problem with Rothstein's, as you said, Rothstein's kind of argument is um, the just-so stories where you take a modern perspective and impose it back on the past. And my argument is you have to go back to the 1930s. You have to look at where the nation was at the time. What was the state of race relations um, what was the state of federal policy and local policy, and how does the New Deal fit into that? And my my narrative is very different. It's not that the New Deal was pure as the newly driven snow, or that the New Deal didn't do some bad things. By the way, they did bad things on a number of counts looking backwards. You know, I'm an environmentalist, and I've been all my life. And some of the dam building they did was catastrophic. But at the time, that's what people wanted. And that's the same with with the racial segregation. That was what 90% of Americans wanted. And, uh, and that is unfortunately what they got. Now, the other thing to say is, okay, on race, we were still an absolutely white supremacist nation. We were a segregated and getting more segregated. And... The New Deal stepped into that. Now, on the other hand, 
This was a nation of minimal government. We had just been through a period, the progressive era had changed that to a remarkable degree at the local level, but not so much the federal level. And uh, in the 1920s, we had, you know, silent Cal Coolidge and the federal government doing nothing when Herbert Hoover was elected in 28 and was confronted immediately with the Great Depression. He was pretty much helpless before the Great Depression because of his faith in minimal government, of the market, a self-regulating and market. And he was a big believer in that. And he was no fool, Herbert Hoover, by the way. And in the, by the late, late in his administration, he started to take some more dramatic federal steps, but he had gotten very, hadn't gotten far enough to do much when Roosevelt came in. So the New Deal comes in and suddenly steps up. And it changes a number of fundamental things in American life. And that is major federal intervention to deal with a, a catastrophic depression. Um, a, the willingness to hire the unemployed, the importance of public works and investing in the public and infrastructure and, and public buildings and then even public art, for heaven's sake, things that the American government had never, ever done. So on a whole set of things, and then finally, social security, public housing, and so on. On a whole set of, of um, fronts, the New Deal did things that were re almost revolutionary in the context of American history and American government, American philosophy, and so on. And we have to recognize that and honor the New Deal for what it did, because so much of it was brilliant. And one of the areas in which it failed was clearly race, but but not entirely. Again, okay, um, here on, on the housing front, which is where they're usually attacked, the New Deal, in order to help the the American economy and Americans because that's what they're trying to do, is help average Americans to an unprecedented degree, wanted to save homeowners and even expand homeownership through federally insured mortgages. They completely transformed the mortgage system through the Federal Housing Administration, which then went on to support this unbelievably ma you know, massive growth of working-class homeownership. Now, you may not like that. I think there's some good reasons to criticize that. But that's what everybody mostly wanted, and that's what they did. But unfortunately, they built ended up building in segregation into the mortgage system. Public housing. We'd never had mass public housing. And the federal government started to build mass public housing. Again, they ran into the fact that Americans, 90%, 99%, of whites wanted segregated housing. So a lot, most of the public housing was segregated, not all. There were eff noble efforts to not segregate it, which we had here in Marin County, the first desegregated public housing was in Marin County of all places here in the Bay Area. But they, they failed to overcome that. But on other fronts, the New Deal, um, involved more 
African-Americans in government that had been seen since Reconstruction. They targeted loan programs and schooling programs towards African-Americans and other disadvantaged groups in American life. So they were very well aware of the problem of racism, racial oppression. Most of the New Deal leaders were profoundly anti-racist, people like Harold Dickey's and uh, Harry Hopkins and Francis Perkins, as well as Eleanor Roosevelt, were profoundly anti-racist and fought the prevailing racism. And so they did make some very critical steps forward, but that's all they did. They were able to do on that front. Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I ask you to join our 400-some-odd patrons in supporting Dead Punnett Society and DPS Media. Most of the things that I release are free to listen to, but they are not free to make. This is a full-time job for me, and I need your generous support in order to keep this thing going. Much less expanding, and expanding we are. In the coming weeks, you're going to be hearing more regular contributors on the podcast. We're resuming our weekly video series called Democratic Socialism 101, and I'm going to be expanding the kinds of videos that are put out on that YouTube channel very, very soon. We're hoping to reach more and more people on that platform in order to turn around its right-leaning bias. Additionally, I'm going to be covering some left current events in the very near future with some of those regular contributors. You're going to see me in the lead-up to the DSA convention talking a lot about that. And if all goes well and my press credentials come through, you'll see me at DSA's convention itself. I'm going to be capturing some audio interviews, getting some good video clips there in order to spread the word of democratic socialism and get some of the inside scoops from some of today and tomorrow's leaders in the socialist movement. But I can't do this without your generous support. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe. Become a supporter today and help to enable our mission, which is spreading democratic socialist politics far and wide. As I say over and over again, we need a robust socialist media ecosystem in order to face down the challenges that are presented to us today. So if you are financially able to do so, I ask you to subscribe and uh, you'll get some bonus content as well. We're putting out weekly B-sides. Subscribers also get access to our Discord forum where they can ask me questions or leave comments or whatever they would like to do on the forum. You know, post up memes, uh, ask people what they eat for breakfast. doesn't matter. The forum is up. It's live. And we'd like to see more contributors over there if you are a current patron as well. Patreon.com slash deadpundit. You guys know what to do on with the show. I think the actual history itself is is really important to to wield here. I've had many guests over the past years come on and, and give um, alternative uh, histories, alternative visions uh, to the one presented by the likes of Rothstein and that uh, the New Deal was racist crowd, uh, wherein you had a number of African-American trade unionists hailing New Deal leg- pieces of legislation, policies, institutions – uh, you know, coming on mass. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, Black Americans had been Republicans since uh, the emancipation, and it was only during the New Deal that 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 broad shift occurred, and many of them became uh, Democrats in, in patterns that we're still seeing uh, quite steadily today, uh, holding quite quite static. Yeah, that's one of the great legacies of the uh, New Deal was that African Americans shifted to the Democratic Party by ninety percent. Right. 
I mean, it's utterly bizarre to argue that the Democratic Party and the New Deal, which was, you know, the the gemstone of that that uh, era's Democratic Party, was fundamentally racist when the bulk of African Americans across the country flocked to the Democrats. And you, you might ask, you, you might imagine some of these people sort of scolding those African Americans and saying, well, don't you know the Southern Democrats were segregationists? Well, then, uh, yeah. I mean, I think people know what's good for them, right? And you have to believe if, if millions of African Americans were flocking to the party, that there had to have been something there. Um, it's, it's astonishing that, that, uh, that we, we, we don't allow ourselves to see that, uh, today. Um, no, and, and that's a really important point, And it's a contradiction that, the, that, uh, conservatives or kind of liberal libertarian liberals like Rothstein are the, precisely the people that scold the left when we, uh, for saying that, oh, you know, working people don't understand their own self-interest. Well, that's what they're doing in this case, just in reverse with African-Americans. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, the parallels are, are quite stark. I mean, there are many other policies. I had Cedric Johnson on uh, recently from the University of Illinois, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, and he talked about some of the uh, these these false narratives that have come out, you know, insofar as uh, they, people say, well, African-Americans were excluded from the GI Bill. And that's actually not true. Not true at all. African-Americans benefited immensely from the GI Bill. Uh, African-Americans didn't benefit from these civilian corps and these other kind of uh, worker, you know, related programs that, that came out of the early New Deal. That's also not true at all. These civilian corps. That's a very important point because the WPA Works Progress Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, and the other, uh, you know, relief agencies that were job creation agencies for the unemployed, they they employed a total of, over the course of the New Deal, like probably 15 million unemployed people. It's a huge number. And over a million of those, well over a million, were African-American and other people of color, Native American. Latinos, Asian Americans, a lot of Asian Americans, and uh, they were not. They did not exclude. So, you, so you get these statements like, "Well, the new the New Deal excluded African Americans from programs such as Social Security." Well, the fact is, the only programs that excluded African Americans from it, and and didn't it actually didn't. There are no programs where they were um, excluded intentionally by you know, by diktat. They, the CCC was integrating. It hired plenty of people of color. Um, they, the original camps were integrated and then local people, local white people put up such a fuss that they had to segregate them. And that means in the South, of course, immediately they segregated them because they knew there'd be trouble. But in the North, they tried to integrate camps and in the West, and they got so much uh, fight back, which is important. This is the, the, the everyday bottom-up white supremacy was against integrating these camps. WPA, the work, what they hired hundreds of thousands of African-Americans, for example, in the WPA, the, the CWA, and so on. Um, and Work crews were actually integrated. Some work crews in some places were segregated. Others were integrated. We have lots of photographs on the Living New Deal's 
page, we have a working together page that shows people working together in, in work teams, both outdoor, indoor work, you know, like uh, secretarial work uh, done by women, sewing rooms that are clearly integrated. And so this idea that it excluded, you know, that was its main, the main thrust of the New Deal is wrong. The main thrust of the New Deal was inclusionary, was to aid all Americans to be as universal as possible. I think this comes down to uh, this kind of wrong-headed post-war liberal view of the state as this kind of neutral playing field, wherein these pluralist, you know, forces navigate, these special interests sort of navigate uh, this neutral playing field uh, for, you know, their interests and to their benefit in a variety of ways. I come from, you know, a radical political science background where people like Robert Dahl in the 1950s and 60s scene really dominated in terms of how people view the state. And, you know, I think nowadays that, that kind of um, what's so puzzling about this field and the claims made by people like uh, Richard Rothstein and others uh, is that it really harkens back to a, a a severely outdated and outmoded view of of the state and how a government functions and and how states work and how classes do or don't sort of uh, com- battle with one another in, 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 at the local level, as you rightly mentioned, at the state level, at the, at, the, at the federal level. And the limits of federal government in terms of what a federal government, a national level government can do in a nation like the United States, wherein you know actual policies have to be carried out by the states and the localities, even though the money and the dictate itself is coming from Washington, D.C. And so these are real limits and contradictions that we have to grapple with today in our varied political scene, to put it lightly. <laughs> uh, incredibly progressive areas like where you hearken from, at least in some senses, that area is progressive. And there are very regressive areas uh, that we're going to need to be able to deal with and implementing programs, ideally, if we win, uh, like mm-hmm. Medicare for all. So I no, think- no, I mean, that's, we should come back to that geographic, yeah. but I really, as a geographer, I'm obsessed with that. But just let me say that first, uh, to confirm what you're you're leading to, which is, you you know, for intellectuals here, you know, this, I wouldn't write this in a op-ed piece, but it's a theory of the state. And uh, there are these completely wrong-headed theories of the state out there from every political perspective. There was you know, long for a long time, a kind of Leninist left that thought, you know, well, you know, if you capture this state, you know, based on some kind of French Revolution, French model or Russian model yeah. where state controls from top, boy, if you capture the state, then you can do X, Y, and Z, which is completely naive about how American federalism and American history and American liberalism works. Then you have the right-wing view that the state is just a menace, you know, and if you just leave the market, which is, um, you know, completely ahistorical, doesn't understand actually how the market works, let alone how the state and society work. And then this kind of middle-of-the-road liberalism, as you said, in which the state is a kind of field for play where people 
it's a kind of equivalent of the market where we all jockey for position and it's open the Robert Dahl kind of liberalism, which, by the way, was I think Dahl was part of that long, long period of reaction against the New Deal to try to restore some kind of to restore a more classical American liberalism. That's very naive. And I think he was arguing against perhaps you could argue an equally a somewhat naive New Deal liberalism that said, you know, the, the state can do this, this, and this to really shape things up. And the New Deal failed to reach as far as it could, as it should have, because it you know, didn't understand, it didn't like clean the clean house at the local level. And so that was a popular position by new post New Deal liberals. Oh, we could have done more and so on. And uh, Gall was arguing back against that with his kind of neutral liberalism. But the fact is, and I think the, the true left position and the intelligent left position is you better understand the way civil society and the state interact. And in a, in a capitalist society, in a non-statist uh, country like the U.S., you better understand how civil society works, who has the power, how power is deployed, how laws are passed, how opposition is, is done, how movements are, are joined and, and gain strength and so on. Those things is how our politics actually works. So you're a geographer, and I'd mentioned that you can't think about the, the theory of the state and how policy is implemented and how, what the limitations and contradictions of those policies and how those things emerge uh, without thinking about sort of geographic diversity. And you mentioned you want to talk a little bit about that. I'd yeah, love to hear more. Yeah, that's part of American federalism was the fact that the states and the localities within state have this enormous power. And, you know, well, it was a Tip O'Neill that said, Maybe I'm misquoting about all politics is local. That's a very American political uh, dictum. And uh, he's, he's quite right up to a point. And you better understand uh, American history, American regionalism, the importance of the South to this day has been a, a kind of anchor on American progressivism. And I hate to just whack on the South, but it's just a fact that the legacy of slavery, one of the legacies of slavery, is not just white supremacy, but is also the importance of the South as a political force in American history. Um, but you better understand the West. You better understand that California is not the same as the rest of the West. The Southwest isn't the same as the Northwest. Regions really matter. Um, you know, everybody remembers um, Frederick Jackson Turner's uh, frontier thesis, but they forget his other book was about regions or what he called sectionalism. And a lot of, you know, great history, American history work is about regions. And yet, you know, I think even a lot of progressives immediately forget about that. So, you know, again, if we can just capture the federal government, all will be well. And here's where the New Deal gives us I think a very important specific lesson among its universals, you know, social security for all, pen pensions for all, uh, um, labor rights uh, for all, and so on. One of the things they did was investment, public investment, 
in all parts of the country. We're going to we're going to pull the whole country up. We're going to uh, allocate these resources as as distribute these federal resources as far as possible uh, without sort of just targeting one area. Uh, you know, it's not again. Universal programs don't say, okay, we're just going to target the disadvantaged or the backward areas or whatever it is. We're going to we're going to spread this stuff all over and heavily all over the country. And it was brilliant because not only did it help all these, uh, you know, really backward areas, rural areas that had really were were had, you know, a lot of people didn't have running water. They didn't have toilets. They didn't have telephones. They had dirt roads and so on. It targeted those areas, but it targeted every place, building, um, you know, civic institutions, schools, parks, uh, sewer lines, water lines, hot roads, and so on. And, and it, then it got, and the other thing they did that was really smart is they went to the states and they went to the local government and said, what do you want built? So there's this idea that the right has uh, hammered away on, oh, yeah, well, the federal government has, we have a powerful federal government. It'll just try to uh, cram their policies down your throat, you know, based on certain cases where that had to be done, like desegregation in the South. But in fact, what the New Deal said, okay, we're going to spend we want you to tell us what you'd like, and we'll look at your projects and we'll pick, you know, pick among the best ones. We want you to participate financially so that you're you're have a commitment to this, and we're going to hire local people to work on it, the local unemployed. So they got tremendous buy-in locally, and sometimes, you know, like I was up in Reno, Nevada, recently, and. There's this fabulous municipal golf course there. And I thought, what are they doing building a golf course? You know, well, the local elite clearly wanted a golf course. So while they built swimming pools for the poor kids and schools and a beautiful post office and so on for everybody or for the disadvantaged, you know, they built a golf course, which is mostly for the upper class. But that's how you get buy-in. That's one of the strengths of universal programs over these mean, means-tested programs. That's Absolutely. why these universal programs have a staying power that you pointed to at the beginning of our interview today, uh, wherein the New Deal was was really institutionally sticky, if you will. It stuck around long after the politicians that implemented it were out of office and Eisenhower and others and even Nixon uh, were, were reluctantly uh, bound to an increasingly uh, flimsy and an increasingly hollowed out, but nonetheless very palpable uh, version of that New Deal legacy, even if it was by Nixon's day, a kind of uh, watered down post-war Keynesianism. But that's that's the strength of these universal programs that you, you've rightly pointed to. Um, yeah, and I think one of the big errors of the Great Society in the 60s was in trying to make up for lost ground and helping especially helping African-Americans, but the poorest people and so on, we got too many targeted programs. And then that allowed the right to turn a huge percentage of the working class against those at the bottom. And so I think our, the, the harsh lesson of history is as much as you want to help the poorest and uh, the most disadvantaged, you, you're best off with universal programs. 
And, you know, this came up when I was still active on the faculty at Cal at Berkeley, where, um, you know, if you're going to help students uh, by uh, with with loan programs and, and aid programs and so on, we had at Berkeley, in fact, Berkeley has the most um, intensive aid program for kids whose parents earn less than fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, just mostly students of color in California. So very great program. But then you constantly hear from sort of the upper middle class. Well, you know, my parents only earn one hundred ten thousand a year, which sounds like a lot of money, but isn't if you're trying to pay for an education, especially when they keep raising tuition. Okay, so if we get rid of tuition, as Bernie and others have proposed. Uh, how much is that going to help the rich? You know, you can say, oh, well, the rich are going to, it's going to be unfair. That's okay. It's going to help everybody. And the, the other side of it is the principle is we need an educated public. That's why we have public schools. So, yes, everybody should go to public schools. In fact, the fact that we let the rich run away to private schools is a scandal. So I want the rich kids in the upper class kids in our public schools. I want them in our public universities. And I want us to pay for a public education for our children. Looking at them as all our children, not as the children of this class or this race. These are all our children. And I want them all to get a good public education. Right. That's how you get the buy-in. And I think that the 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 great society model that you rightly point to uh, as as uh, aspirational as it was in terms of, in ways that we would all approve of at, and in an abstract sense, uh, it failed on those terms. And trying to uplift uh, the the needy, the very deserving uh, needy and oppressed, uh, we've undermined our ability to actually do that in the long term. And uh, we need to change the way we think and, and and act on that basis. And of course, the critique of New Deal for racism is largely based on. Uh, two major exclusions, and then the housing policy we talked about already. And those two major exclusions were Social Security and uh, the National Labor Relations Act, in which they didn't exclude people by race expressly, but the Southerners, and let me add this as a Westerner, this always gets forgotten, the Western growers did not want their cheap racialized labor forces to get union, to be able to get union organization or to be covered by social security because then they'd have to pay into social security because that was part of the deal, right? So they got those specific exclusions for, for agricultural workers. And then they threw in for household workers, you know, domestic workers, which, of course, the entire elite of the country was quite happy with that because they hired basically poor black women, by and large, or poor Chinese women to do their house cleaning. And uh, and this, this was, of course, beyond the pale. So those exclusions are very particular, and they had to do with very particular industries and very particular regions. And if we don't understand that, then, you know, and the power, let me tell you about the power of California agribusiness. Don't get me going on that. I wrote a whole book on it. But if you, um, 
But if you want to understand those politics and those power centers, you would never make a stupid statement that, well, you know, the New Deal excluded black people from Social Security. Yeah, strangely enough, I've I've raised this article on my show multiple times over the years, but I'm going to do it again. And I'm sure you're familiar with this uh, yourself, Richard, but I want my audience to hear it again if you've overlooked it. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. The best article debunking this claim that African-Americans were excluded from the Social Security Act on the basis of their race rather than their class position and their, and their, uh, their position in Southern industry, as you rightly pointed to. Uh, comes from, oddly enough, the Social Security Administration website itself. <laughs> Their uh, public historian, Larry DeWitt. Oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Very infamous piece by by folks like ourselves who, who've read up on this stuff uh, and, and, and very poorly understood and, and recognized by journalists who, who write uh, to the contrary in mainstream outlets on a weekly basis. <laughs> but he, he, he cleans up this this uh, revisionist narrative quite well. It's the piece is called The Decision to Exclude Agricultural and Domestic Workers from the 1935 Social Security Act. Very uh, unceremonious uh, title, but uh, I'll link to it. It's in the Social Security Bulletin, Volume 70 from 2010. And uh, it talks about the you know, the, the industry-based uh, ways uh, that these people were, were excluded. And, and by, by and large, uh, many, many white sharecroppers, many, many more white sharecroppers actually uh, by uh, orders of magnitude uh, were excluded uh, from the Social Security Act as well by virtue of their um, their job. Uh, so these were class these were class distinctions that actually um, were that's right happened to affect African Americans being uh, the legacies and trajectories of white supremacy and slavery in the United States. That's right. I mean, I black workers are on the bottom. Yeah, this is a classic case where a left, you know, as a left analysis would say, yeah, this class based. But of course, as we understand, these classes were these class relations were racialized. The two are deeply intertwined. Just like slavery itself wasn't just a racial category. It was a class race category. And the history of, say, California agribusiness, been told many times by excellent historians, was a racialized, a repeatedly re-racialized cheap labor force. And every time one of the new migrant um, populations would start to get organized, stand up on their hind legs and so on, they would be thrown out and you'd bring in another one. And they were always racialized. And that was the point because you could keep them even poorer and weaker so that the rate of exploitation could be the highest possible. That's right. Many uh, excellent pieces have been written to that effect across uh, the decades. They are often overlooked by today's academics and certainly by the mainstream pundits. Here's our coup de grace question. Your piece in Jacobin at least focuses uh, quite extensively on housing segregation and, and those policies in the New Deal. Here's, here's a provocation that I, that I can't help but to ask myself. When I, I myself have studied uh, as, a, as an academic historian anyway, uh, the New Deal – uh, quite in depth, in an in depth way. And I always have to ask myself this question. If it was the case that these, that redlining emerges as a result of trying to protect home value, property value, which is, which is the way that uh, American capitalism developed in a very conscientious way to 
provide a certain amount of buy-in to American capitalism by making people homeowners. I can't remember who this is. Uh, this is often attributed to, but something to the effect of, you know, there's a, there's a quote out there. Maybe you'll, you'll recall is, uh, what is it? It's going to kill me, Richard. Uh, something to the effect of we, we, we combat the Soviet threat by making uh, Americans homeowners was the ideal is that this is how we stave off communism and 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 this is how american capitalism will champion and will will you know and what that meant they didn't care a whole lot about the russians themselves let's be honest it was the threat of these militant trade unions yeah. and these radical political parties that were rearing their heads in the 1920s and 30s and and that was the real threat but home ownership was seen as a way to produce a certain amount of buy in and to materially tie Average Americans, millions of average Americans to the success of American capitalism and that capitalist right. machine. And so when you start talking about property values and redlining and the real, I mean, let's be honest about this. I mean, this is not something that people like to say. It was a fact if an African American family moved into your neighborhood that your property value would thereby decrease. It would. Now, does that negate the moral claim, you know, the, the universal moral claim there that, that that's abhorrent? I mean, of course it's abhorrent. Right. Nonetheless, your property value would in fact decline. So the question I have there, is this a race problem or is this a capitalism problem? Is tying people's uh, prospects in the world to the value of their home necessarily – does that originate as a race problem or is there a more fundamental capitalism problem at, at, at work here? Well, I, I'm – you know, I don't mind ranking things. I, I'm a little cautious about statements like a more fundamental capitalist problem. Yeah. I would say – It's risky. And I've wrestled with this. Look, I'm an urbanist. I wrote my dissertation about – um, suburbanization back in the 1970s. I've written extensively about cities right to the present. And uh, I remember as a young scholar, you know, being puzzled by why is homeownership such a thing in America? And there is, there's a lot that goes on there. There, there, it's a partly a financial thing. A, that Americans love their houses as assets, that we are the most commodified, commercialized society in, in history. Um, the, and if you know your friends who have houses, you know, there's the use value and the exchange value, and they never forget about the exchange value. And in other societies, you know, the village, the local home is part of the village, is the exchange value is extremely minor. And Americans had its always right up. But there's also other things go into this. Uh, as you said, the capitalists were fretting over the threat of this kind of uh, detached, this detached roaming population. The um, They used to call them tramps before they called them hobos and so on. In the 19th century, there, there seemed to be this huge working population that wasn't tied to you, wasn't tied to a place, and certainly wasn't tied to your capitalist values. And they started experimenting in the late 19th century with uh, company towns, which weren't simply just to exploit the worker. Some of them were, but some were actually to tie the worker, give them that sort of paternalistic 
attachment to place, sell them little houses and their little uh, in that town. And I remember, you know, um, historians like Herbert Gutman uh, were also wrestling with this question. Why did the working class, American working class, seem to put a big, um, actually themselves, a certain segment of them, put a lot of value in owning a house. What is this about? Does it go back? Is it English in origin? Some of it is. You go to Canada, you see a very different history, but in which English small owner ownership of the working class plays a big role. In America, we had this really in the United States. People don't like the word America. Um, We have this deep, deep agrarian history, you know, this agrarian ideal, Jeffersonian ideal, the little house in the suburbs was a kind of replacement for the little house in the small town or on the farm. It, it's, there's a whole cultural element of this too. So you've got class, you've got culture, you've got finance, you've got class struggle. It, it's, a, it's a very complicated kind of mix of why home ownership became this thing. But now specifically, the capitalists definitely got on to this in the early 20th century. And there's this very important um, conference called by Herbert Hoover um, when he was still um, Secretary of Commerce before he became president and then continued called the Conference on Housing and Home Ownership, where most of these policies that ended up adopted by the New Deal were actually carved out about uh, redoing the mortgage system, about the importance of homeownership for social stability and so on. I, I highly recommend Mark Weiss's great book, The Community Builders, as the history of this. And, uh, and so this was, you know, it was clearly very important even before the New Deal. And then after you got the 30-year mortgages and you started to get many more working class people with houses, it's true. People were always, they always had one eye on the property value. And, um, oh God, what's the great, there's a great book on this about Detroit. What's his name? Another historian. Where they're keeping their eye on the property values all the time. And yeah, if a black part, the black uh, family moved in, you knew that even if you didn't care, your racist neighbors would care, and that that would drive, that would throw the whole housing market into a cocked hat. So that was a long, that was a long answer, but I think it deserves, these things, you know, when you talk to historians, and I'm half a historian, uh, you get long answers because it's important to pick up on some of the subtleties and some of the complexities of these kind of historical legacies that continue to this day. Yeah, that's spot on. You know, the complexity is really important to preserve. We need to fight for that complexity. I think in today's media environment, wherein these these short, uh, pithy, hot takey styles of of interviews and approaches and coverage that you're likely to get from major outlets like the New York Times or CNN or other other 
places like that, certainly the internet. I mean, Twitter has made, made our hot takes even, you know, unbearably short and oh, has yeah. completely <laughs> flattened any, any sense of complexity. Uh, we need to fight for that complexity nonetheless. And it's, it's, it's not shocking not to be too uncharitable to our colleague, uh, Richard Rothstein, but it's, it's not that surprising that in this, uh, snap judgment, hot take media economy, that an explanation as simplistic as his uh, would prevail because it doesn't require uh, this kind of long-winded uh, response like the one you just gave. It, it points to a moral absolute that most of us nowadays adhere to, that racism is wrong and that the U.S. is fundamentally racist from the start. And therefore, you know, it's, it's easy to then project backwards into the past as a, as a, as a universal causative mechanism for the way things turned out in, into the present. Um, and, and it's, this isn't just about getting history right. It's about getting, getting the present correct in terms of how we move forward. And that's how I want to end on here. Cause you rightly pushed back on my very simplistic either or, or ranking provocation that I try to sort of get you into. Is this a race problem or a capitalism problem? That's a false choice. But here's, here's what I really wanted to dig into. Why does that matter? Um, cause to me, it matters in terms of how we might go about redressing these racist legacies. If you want to attack racism, do you go after racism in the ideas in people's heads or do you have to go after more fundamental, um, material, uh, historical convoluted outcomes like the one you just laid out? What is your take on that? How do we, cause, cause that's really the stakes of, of these debates in our contemporary moment. Yeah. And I do think we tend to think the way you'll overcome racism is, um, uh, is by, identifying and shouting down or demonstrating against bigots. But that's not how it happens. I mean, this is deeply institutionalized racism, and you have to dismantle the, the institutions that support it. And that could include, you know, uh, redlining. You know, I greatly support the work, work say, of the Redlining Institute here in Berkeley. Uh, the, it's not the green lining, but anyway for years fighting these kind of segregation uh, policies among financial institutions. So, yeah, you have to dismantle institutions that allow a class and a race, a group of people of one color, of ownership and so on, to to dominate uh, politics and policies. And to insert, get you have to get organized, you have to get the common people organized. And you have to unify the common people um, in, in many ways, because if they're just denouncing one another, uh, you're not going to bring any change. So you, some kind of at least agreement to disagree, to have a certain degree of unity so that you can actually develop the, the power in, it, in what we have left of our democracy to reverse these policies of the elite these policies of the racists um, and put in, in their place policies that are universal, policies that are going to um, take away the kind of white, what is it, what is it, the, uh, the white wage, I think, as the post put it, you know, the, the psychic wage for poor white people. If they feel you know, if white working class people feel like they're getting a fair deal in life, 
that the government cares about them, they're, they're not going to be so ready to want to attack immigrants or blacks or women or whatever it might be as somehow the origins of their pain and of their distress. So the more we can create an actually equal society, the more we can create a government that for the people, the more we can pull this mass of the working class, because it isn't like a bottom 20%. We're talking minimally the bottom 50% who are suffering today. The more we can have policies that invest in them, that invest in their children and help them in tangible material ways, the more they're going to buy in to collective, universalist, public, spirited uh, sense of this country and stop trying to find uh, people to blame, which is, of course, what the right is always doing. It's trying to get divert public working class anger on irrelevant targets so that they'll avoid, they'll forget to focus on the rich and the powerful who actually have the power to create laws, who actually have the money to um, to buy out of a declining, decrepit public sphere and uh, protect themselves in their own little bubbles. So that, that, to me, is the overall task ahead of us. That's right. I think the stakes of this debate on terms of whether the New Deal created segregation, whether the New Deal was top-down racist and did nothing good for people of color and other poor and marginalized folks across the country, uh, those stakes couldn't be higher. And uh, you've done a tremendous service in, in pushing back on on this uh, somewhat hegemonic force right now, this hegemonic revisionist narrative that has emerged. And I hope that we can continue to do that. And we're seeing this in, in practice, you know. Um, I think the I think the main takeaway point is the New Deal was amazing and how it rose above the existing, the contemporary um, stagnation of American politics on any number of fronts to serve the people, to invest in the public good, uh, and to be eth- and by the way, very importantly to bring in a kind of ethical, moral government. And it is still the best example we have, other than maybe Lincoln, um, for rising above our time and putting in place a whole almost revolutionary set of policies that could turn this country around. And so to nitpick at the New Deal for what it failed to do, because it did fail, it failed on housing policy, I think, in many ways, and other areas. But, you know, if I'm if I'm launching a Green New Deal, I'm not going to focus on how the New Deal built too many bad dams. That's not the point. The New Deal is very green. It provides a wonderful model for greenness and for rising above the racism of the time, actually. So that's what we need to remember, because that's what can inspire us today to do better and, and build on our 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 better angels. That's a fantastic place to leave off for today's A side. And it's a nice little teaser for the B side. We're going to go head over to the B side. Now this will, that B side will come out in a couple of days. It'll be available to patrons of the dead pundit society. 
You can check that out at patreon.com slash dead pundits. As we've been talking, uh, capitalism has its own sets of imperatives and uh, this show is not free to make. So I do this due to the generosity of the 400 some odd patrons out there across the world who support this work and enable me to bring on really important voices like Richard Walker to set these people straight on the legacy of the New Deal. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thanks again, Richard Walker. Thanks for having me. Oh, this new crazy mother...